What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. On today's show, we have the tenacious Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress, the hardworking Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University, the excellent Shereen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. So first, we want to give a shout out to all our patrons who are supporting this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign. You make this podcast possible, and we are forever and always grateful. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. You can pledge as little as $1 per month, but if you donate more, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon-only podcast segment each month and our monthly newsletter, or even do your own burn pile. Last week, we had Rhea Butcher on the show. Patrons got to hear the full 20-minute interview. Sign up now, and you can hear it too. So before we get into it, let's talk about something fun, you guys. Did you all see Allie Raceman and David Ortiz on the mound this week before the season opener for the Boston Red Sox? Okay, I totally missed yes, this. That so is. can you guys tell me? Did you miss it? <laughs> I was trolling. Oh, you have to go look at Okay, tell me about it. You have it. to go look at every gift that exists. Okay, tell me about it. So so they were there to yell play ball. This I'm again, I'm not a baseball person, so I don't this, know how it, it works. It was the Fenway it, opener. There so you go. Usually for, <laughs> for openers, you know, people do little things. So for the Fenway opener, they had Ali and David and they were going to throw out the first pitch and officially open and welcome baseball back to Boston. Yeah, and so Ortiz before I like Amira, I like how you call them David and Allie, like girlfriends. Um, before, <laughs> David was wearing his uh, Red Sox jersey and he like ripped it open because he's David Ortiz and underneath he had a black shirt with in huge white letters, the words girl power. And, and then he hugs her and he then tells the crowd that Boston is her city too. And which is which essentially act- what he said after the Boston Marathon bombing, but he used cuss words. Right, right, famously. And then it was, you know, and it's really sweet. It's like a sweet echo because after she won the gold in Rio, she threw out the first pitch at Fenway and he was her medal holder. Like she had put her medal around his, or medals probably, around his neck Aww. for her to be able to throw out the ball. So they've they've been out there before together. So for... I don't know. It just it was really sweet and the gifts or gifs are are just adorable. Did he give any nod to the advocacy work she's been doing about times up and Nasser and everything? That was essentially the what the shirt was referring okay, gotcha. to and okay. why they were having her awesome. there. So that the, the kind of ask for Ali to be present and do the first pitch was the kind of organizational acknowledgement of what she's been doing. And so it was is I mean 
mean, as a Red Sox fan, it was really heartening to, you know, I love Poppy and, and, and it was really great to have this moment. And it is amazing to watch him rip off his shirt and it's like kind of a Superman rip off and it just says girl power. It's, I, it's phenomenal. I saw, I didn't see it happen live, but I was in the US when it happened and it was being replayed and it was always on Twitter. And it was such a really, really sweet thing, particularly for me, it signifies allyship and the girl power was not just a subtle nod to the Spice Girls, who I'm also sure Poppy <laughs> is a fan of. I think it was Yay. also just a very wonderful form of saying you can support these survivors, these these women, and for him to do that and be such a formidable character is in baseball and a personality that's so important in that community and globally, like in the baseball world, was was really lovely. Like it was a very lovely thing. Aww. It was lovely. And yay sports. Um, yay. <laughs> I say that because now we're going to move on to our show. <laughs> it's maybe the opposite of yay sports. Rant uh, warning. First, yeah, rant, like a rant show. Um, first up, we're going to talk about a subject that we've wanted to discuss for a while. And we feel like this is a good moment. We're going to talk about Kobe Bryant and his relationship to women's basketball. We have a lot of feelings on this. Then we're going to turn once again to discuss racism in sport because there was a slew of new stories this week in lacrosse, basketball, football. And then finally, Shereen interviews Aisha McGowan, the woman attempting to become the first ever female African-American pro cyclist. We'll cap it off by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout outs to women who deserve shout outs and telling you what is good in our worlds. Let's get into it. So Kobe and women's basketball. Let's do this, y'all. Lindsay, you want to get us started? Sure. I'm going to try and be brief here because I know I just have a lot of things to say, but I want to get, I just want to get it, get this conversation (laughs) started. All right. Let's start with the women's final four, which was absolutely incredible last week. Of course, it had the two overtime games in the semifinal and then the championship, which Arike Agumbawale, my new best friend in my mind. One on a almost last second three-pointer from the corner to take down Mississippi State. In the semifinals and in the finals, there was a very um, notable presence in the crowd, which was Kobe Bryant and his wife and his daughter. Kobe has long been a champion of women's basketball. And considering that women's basketball needs a lot of high profile champions, that that is a good thing for the sport right now. And that Kobe is so beloved in the basketball community, as expected, and as is always the case when Kobe shows up, Kobe gets a lot of airtime, Kobe gets a lot of tension, Kobe sucks a lot of the air out of the room for being Kobe and for saying very, I would say, good, but also like not... I wish it wasn't a big deal that there was a man who was like, these women are awesome. <laughs> like everyone's like, mm-hmm. oh, let me fawn over you forever. Like you are such a feminist or whatever. You know, it just it just drives me crazy. But that's that's kind of another subject. But I want we want to specifically hone in on Kobe right now. Of course, this is troubling to me and I think a lot of fans because Kobe in 2003 was accused of rape. And the allegations were incredibly troubling, to say the least. The way his legal team treated his the woman who he had this encounter with was 
set a tone for victim blaming and slut shaming that we still see used time after time in legal defenses by high profile athletes to this day. And there are very, while I try and go into every situation with a very open mind, even though my trolls on Twitter will tell me I don't, I looked back at this case in 2016 when Kobe was was retiring, and there's there is very good reason to still be troubled by everything that happened here. I'm going to read you Kobe's apology statement at the time, which he gave as part of a settlement to end this civil suit. And at the time that this statement was given, the woman also dropped the uh, stopped cooperating with the criminal investigation. And this is kind of what made all of this go away for Kobe. But here's the statement. Quote, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. After months of reviewing discovery, listening to her attorney, and even her testimony in person, I now understand how she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. It's kind of a staggering apology because there's, an, there's Kobe is saying... I understand that she believes that she was raped and I'm kind of conceding to that fact. So while he's not saying in the affirmative that he raped her, he is very much giving credence to everything that this woman has been saying and has been crucified in the press for since this statement. And since he came forward and gave his wife that famous apology ring, which was for cheating on her because he did admit having this encounter with this woman. Kobe hasn't talked about this. There's been no reckoning for Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant lost a lot of sponsors during the deal, but he gained them all back in some. He, of course, finished an illustrious basketball career. He won an Oscar this year. And Mm -hmm. we all still worship at the altar of Kobe Bryant. That statement that I just read is the last he said on any of this. To me, that feels very, very unfinished. (laughs) And that leaves a lot to be desired. And it's really hard for me to lift him up as pretty much at this point, the most high profile champion of women's basketball on this Sports Illustrated cover, which Arike Agumbawale was about her shot, which was this incredible moment for women's sports. The text of it said, Arike Agumbawale brings home title for Notre Dame. Even Kobe is an all. So all these women are sharing this moment with Kobe. And you guys, I just can't. I don't know what to do with this. Somebody help me. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so complicated because... He does bring the attention, right? And and you're right that he like sucks the air out of the room when he does it. But at the same time, <sighs> women's basketball needs all the attention it can get. But the idea that this is how they're getting attention, I I have so many feelings all the time about this. I understand the embrace of him by the league and the sport that that needs this kind of attention on it. I mean, Arike. Agumwale was on Ellen this week and surprise guest, (laughs) Kobe Bryant was there. And I wonder if part of the reason she was there is because they knew they could get him too. And so 
But that's great. She was on there. She got to talk about what happened and how great women's basketball is. And I'm happy about that. So I I don't know. Shireen, what are your thoughts? I have so many thoughts. Lindsay, the piece that you wrote for Think Progress on this in, was really, really, really important about w- when the case was happening and how he shaped how the media handles abusers. And I wrote a piece in April 2016, which subsequently went into Best Canadian Sports Writing 2017. Right. And Hashtag it was a response. Not even humble, humble brag. <laughs> but what the reason I did that is because not just women's basketball, but fans of, of basketball in general still idolize this person. And it makes me super uncomfortable that this happens because there's no discussion. I mean, if Kobe was to come out and sort of say, listen, I'm going to donate like a million dollars to, and I use that figure because Cap donates so generously and so easily, to uh, women's shelters or uh, for survivors or me too, Right. Did Kobe say anything about Me Too? I can't even remember. And that was a movement that literally went everywhere. When Brianna Stewart came out and wrote that piece, did he come out and support or retweet when he's all over, you know, supposedly all over women's basketball and a supporter? You didn't you didn't say anything? And I'm sure his handlers told him not to say anything because of the obvious reasons. But also I agree with what Lindsay says about women having to share it. And I do struggle with the idea that, you know, women's basketball needs to be amplified and ergo needs to rely on Kobe. But I actually don't feel that way. I think women's basketball relies on women who always do the work anyway. And, you know, maybe we can nudge Steph Curry and be like, can you start talking or email pop? Cause we can email pop and be like, can you start bigging it up? Like I just, there's gotta be another alternative to Kobe Bryant. My God, there's got, maybe we can get Zlatan, Zlatan Ibrahimovic who was on the sidelines of the, uh, of the Lakers to start talking about, it. I don't know anyone, but Kobe is literally my, I need that on a shirt. Anyone but Kobe. (laughs) (laughs) Amira? Yeah, I I also have complicated uh, feelings about this. One, the first things first, I think that it is also a a kind of stunning example of uh, the kind of idea, the myth that rape allegation will ruin your life because he seems to be, you know, rolling along just fine. (laughs) He won! But Oscar. It does, I just can't get over the Oscar. I'm <laughs> I know. sorry. And it wasn't even the best in that category. It was, it was a terrible short film. <laughs> sorry. But, okay. No problem. I'm glad you got that off your chest. But a lot of my kind of complicated feelings come because I've been wrestling lately with the idea of rehab or rehabilitating mm-hmm. your image, both in a kind of corporate sense, like, oh, now I can sell things or have myself appear courtside and everybody fawn over me. But really thinking concretely about what what do you do and where where do you go after allegations or after you've confessed or like – I've just been really kind of wrestling with this idea and thinking about like Shireen, what you just said about his kind of utter lack of acknowledgement. And Lindsay, you noted that that confessions last time he talked about that. Would it feel less icky if he, you know, took ownership of that or said me too and, and, and said, you know what? Molly Ringwald just wrote a piece where she completely Mm-hmm. considered and returned to movies she was in and the way she was part of a certain type of process of this. And I think that what would it look like if he was doing that and not kind of running or shielding from it, but like embracing it, would we, would that make it better? Or would there be a way in which it d- it didn't matter? Because once this happens, it's, you know, that's it, that you're always going to be carrying that with you for the rest of your life. And and so those are the things I'm thinking about. And of course, I, I, I 
compare this to Ben Roethlisberger a lot and in the ways legacies of of allegations can hang on you, but the disparate ways in which people are treated. I don't know. Like I, I I'm I'm very much wrestling with that idea. What would it look like to be for him to be accountable? Right. And I think one of the most difficult things about this is how do we decide if we don't have an idea of what that means to the victim, to the person harmed? But of course we shouldn't know on some like we shouldn't be like knocking on this person's door asking. And and so how we as a society or community decide that it's enough, that this is that accountability has been had and and we don't have to carry it with us all the time anytime that this person is there. It's just it's so hard to measure. And I and I do think it I mean yeah, on some level, I want to tell you what I personally think he should be doing, but does it matter what I think he should be doing? I don't know. And and, and that's right. one of the things that I wrestle with when I think about, I don't not redemption, I guess rehab. I don't know. It's so complicated and it's hard. Uh, Lindsay? Yeah, I think to bring this back to women's basketball, one of the reasons why I don't get so angry with the women's basketball community about this is because... It's a universal thing with Kobe, right? There's this universal acceptance and moving on. So it's not like all corners of the sports world and the entertainment world are blackballing Kobe for this. And then it's just women's basketball who's, you know, celebrating him. I mean, journalists we love, you know, Jamel Hill, friend of the show, I like to say, you know, who we've interviewed, you know, she interviews Kobe and doesn't bring this up. You know, this is, it's just kind of universally accepted and moved on. And that's really hard to grapple with, especially as we come today. I mean, I think sometimes the significance of the Me Too movement, it's a very important step, but it's, it's very much just a step and nobody knows what the rest of this staircase looks like, or even if it exists. And, you know, we have to keep kind of building it as we go along. And part of that is figuring out what we do with people like Kobe Bryant, whose out the allegations happened so long ago, but that are still there, that are still there, that are still troubling, and that we think there's still some reckoning that needs to be done. Uh, you know, I wrote about this a little bit with Sean White, which was a very different situation uh, on the spectrum, but it was, you know, sexual harassment. And I, I don't want to say that I'm saying that is rape. I'm not. But one of my things with his Olympic redemption arc was that NBC didn't even ask him about it in their softball interviews, you know, with him. And I felt that one of my things was, I, I'm not saying that the, these that this guy needs to be banned. I'm not saying I don't want to watch, enjoy his, you know, gold medal winning run in the Olympics. I'm saying, I think if we're talking about his story the past four years, he should be asked about these incredibly troubling allegations, you know? And that's, it has to continue to be part of the conversation. So that's why I think even though we don't have all the answers right now, continuing to bring it up, continuing to grapple with it. And I'm not saying that Kobe needs to, has to go away forever, but I'm saying that this, this right now, what's happening also isn't the answer. So uh, even though I don't have the answer, we've got to keep pushing this conversation forward. 
Absolutely. Shireen? I'm okay with Kobe going away forever, but no, just kidding. Not really. But the last thing is, is that I can say with certainty that although a lot of media does sort of ignore those hard questions or doesn't want to bring it up or maybe are told that by their superiors, they cannot bring it up because that's kind of the power that he wields is that he will never be on burn it all down. And I don't like to speak for us <laughs> as a whole, but I'm pretty sure I can say that. And that's all. That's that's it for me. Unless he wants to talk about the rape out. You know, unless he wants yes. to, if Kobe <laughs> yeah, okay. would like to specifically address what happened in 2003 and what he has learned from it, <laughs> then he we have can, space here. Then he, then space. he, ha- okay. he has space. Those, but but he should know those are the only questions we will be asking. <laughs> Amira? Yeah, I think one of the things that leads me to think on is the particular vehicle of sports in rehabbing an image. Like you said, Lindsay, like watching Sean White like tear through that course, there's something about sports. And I'm thinking this particularly reflecting on Chapel. I can't even say it. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm the worst person. Chapoquitic. Chapoquitic? Yeah, there you go. Thank you. As that movie is coming out, As that movie is coming out and, you know, thinking about how scandals in politics move a certain way. And it leads me to think about the sports world and how sports, especially because there's so much embodiment there, we watch them, we consume them, they can raise your blood pressure and make you scream and make you cry and invoke all these emotions. But largely, I feel like there's a particular way that you can forget. I mean, we're all cheering for Tiger again, you know, in his comeback. I think, you know, Lindsay made this point earlier, but I think that there is a way that sports is a particular vehicle that allows these conversations to drop off unless we're very relentless on continuing to ask the question. Thank you. And I just want to end by telling everyone to watch women's basketball. Do it because they're amazing and not because Kobe Bryant tells you they're amazing. All right. Surprise. There's racism in sports. Amira, (laughs) do you want to give us the latest on this? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about UEFA last week, but I want us to do a little bit of roundtable of racism, if we will. Um, So I'll kick it off and then I'll pass it to you. So one uh, story that has emerged this week is about a lacrosse team in the Dakota Premier Lacrosse League, the TBLL. And one of the things that has happened is that these three predominantly indigenous teams were expelled from the league by one Corey Mitchell. And the reasons for this, if you ask the league, they cite, you know, ideas about rosters and things that clearly just seem like excuses. And the Seven Flames lacrosse team as well as the other two teams kicked out are saying, no, actually, we've been bringing reports of racism. Our players have been called prairie niggers. They've been called a bunch of drunks. They've been told to go back to the reservation. This is a continuous thing from other players, from referees, from coaches, from fans. And every time we bring it up, it's dismissed. And so they say that the league expelled them within weeks of the opener, so they didn't get any time to appeal this, because this dude, Corey Mitchell, would rather kick them out of the league than deal with these allegations. He reportedly said that 
that the, they keep playing the race card and it's he knows that racism exists but he doesn't really believe that it's operating here and he would rather not deal with this problem so it seems like he is not the nicest guy in the world many coaches confirmed the racial slurs that are constantly being hurled at these players from these teams that are mostly drawn from the Lakota reservations in the Dakotas and what's really frustrating is that because this this uh, decision was made so close to the beginning of the season, they are these kids are not getting to play lacrosse within this league. It's doubly frustrating if you realize that lacrosse was, you know, a sport played by indigenous people before settlement. And so it's like, what what the audacity? And so now it's just being appealed to USA Lacrosse and in many ways they're backing this Corey Mitchell dude who was who runs that league. And at the end of the day, these kids who have been by all accounts, even people who are discernibly against them, subjected to racial abuse. And one kid said, this is how it's been for all five years that I've played in the league. And so if we really were playing a quote unquote race card, we would have played it years ago. But all we want to do is have a chance to play. And it's just boiling my blood to think about these kids who are not able to play because this this racist dude wants to, you know, expel them rather than deal with the fact that they have a huge problem on their hands. And then when they do play, they're subjected to ridiculously racist taunts just because they want to play lacrosse. So that's to kick off the roundtable of racism. Thoughts on this story or other stories that you've seen that we can kind of add to this wonderful week in sports. The lose-lose of racism. Exactly. (laughs) I was going to bring up Deadspin. Nick Martin at Deadspin ran a story this week about Brandeis. It's a D3 school. Their basketball coach, he just seems like an abusive asshole, like in general. But he seems to direct most of that at his uh, black basketball players. He cuts them from the team much more or more often than he cuts white players. He says things like to one of the African players on the team, he said that he was going to ship him back to Africa and then he wouldn't sit near him on the bench and he made an Ebola joke, which reminded oh. me of what we were talking about with Enia Luko. Wasn't that Please right? Tell Wasn't me there he doesn't an, still an, have a job. Right. Well, he did until Deadspin called and said, hey, we heard all these horrible things about your coach. Why does he still have a job? And then they fired him. And of course, they're hiding. Brandeis is saying that they are following due process and, you know, doing procedure. And it just so happened to line up this way. But it does appear that because Deadspin put the heat on them, that they finally did what they should have done probably years ago. But uh, because the players told people like it wasn't again, it was one of these things where people knew that this was happening. And the school just sort of sat on it. So that's my roundtable add shireen yes since we're talking about policy and not actually getting anything done about this issue i automatically go to fifa mm-hmm. and uh, fifa as everybody knows disbands its anti-racism task force in 2016 in, in the fall because apparently they solved racism but just this past week in world cup <laughs> qualifiers good job good, good job. well done <laughs> just this past week france led by the incomparable and fabulous and brilliant paul pogba my God, that person is fantastic. They actually beat Russia 3-1 in St. Petersburg and then were treated to monkey chants, including when uh, Nicola Conte came to the sideline for a throw-in. And I think that the issue is like – 
you know, people, the French sports minister is saying racism has no place on soccer fields, which I find incredibly ironic that the FFF still bans hijab, but that's another story. But the idea that this is still happening, it overt, as opposed to covert racism, like overt racism is not okay. So everyone can say that. But the idea that it's still prevalent, and then what does FIFA do? The governing body dismantles the actual committee on it. And we know that UEFA did nothing in so much that I know you all talked about this last week, that Mishi Batshuayi called it out himself. So now we're getting to a place where the athletes are actually calling it out themselves, which is what is happening. Athletes are rising up. And I don't think they're necessarily trying to be activists, but they have to carry their own load in such a tremendous way. And racial abuse is extremely emotionally, psychologically, mentally draining to endure. And the fact that they have to do this is is so upsetting. Yeah, it is. It really is. Lindsay, do you want to tell us about what went on in Houston this week? Yeah, just a couple of, of things. I mean, look, the biggest thing, the Michael Bennett case is ongoing. And that's something we should all be keeping an eye on because it's another way of silencing these athletes. We've talked about the Michael Bennett stuff a little bit, but I I do, it doesn't directly fit into, it does directly fit into this conversation. What am I saying? (laughs) It's absolutely does because it's a way, but you know, Michael Bennett has been, is facing up to 10 years in prison in Houston for in 2017, after the Super Bowl, they are now saying that he apparently pushed a, 66-year-old paraplegic security guard who the excuse me the the police chief was sure to mention multiple times was black so this can't be racist cuz the the paraplegic security guard was black and you know sprained the shoulder as he was trying to get to the field to celebrate the Super Bowl win with his brother I wrote a piece about this on Think Progress this week that you know we'll link but there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical about this story and to feel that it is a way of silencing him for the activism that he has done against, you know, police brutality and systemic racism. And speaking of systemic racism, we have the Houston Texans owner, Bob McNair, who you might remember. Yeah, always, uh, you know, perennial burn pile member who you might remember told his colleagues last year during a conversation, a closed door conversation that ESPN was able to report on through sources when they were discussing the national anthem uh, the protest during the national anthem at the in the NFL and how the league was going to deal with this issue or whatever. He said, quote, we can't have the inmates running the prison. Well, at the time, he apologized to anyone who was offended by it, you know, in the standard apology manners. But according to the he gave an interview this week to the Wall Street Journal, in which he said, quote, the main thing I regret is apologizing. (laughs) So so what Bob McNair has learned from all of this is not that he should see his players as well-rounded people who are trying to make the world a better place and who are, you know, who have these backgrounds that he should learn about and that he should give them the freedom to express themselves and, you know, really treat them as partners in this. That's not what he learned. He learned that he should never be forced to apologize for anything. He even, quote, said, I really didn't have anything to apologize for. And this to me, it's just staggering because like this is 
these are still the people in power. Like, how do we continue to have these instant after instant of racism? Like, how are we having another racism roundtable? And how will we have no- another one probably in a month with a all new instance? Because guys like Bob McNair are the ones who still have all the power. They're the ones running things. And ultimately, to them, racism isn't a flaw of the system. It is the system. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Amira, I want to wrap exactly. it up for us. Yeah, exactly. And I think these examples show us all the way in which racism permeates within sports. So it's from being called the prairie nigger while you're trying to play lacrosse as a 14 year old to Michael Bennett, you know, and in a kind of trumped up indictment because you dare to say black lives matter. I think that the full spectrum includes these aggressions, but also as we can see, it's so systemic. It's you know, McNair in the owner's meeting doing this and then issuing a non-apology apology and then recanting that apology. But it's everywhere from the failure to handle it in the Dakota Premier Lacrosse League to FIFA. And I think that, you know, part of this roundtable is is showing the full accounting of all the different crevices that racism lives in in the sports world. Next up, Shireen interviews Aisha McGowan, the woman attempting to become the first ever female African-American pro cyclist. I am so excited to have one of my favorite Twitter people, cyclist extraordinaire, absolute badass violinist, former music teacher, Aisha McGowan, also known as a quick brown fox on Burn It All Down today. Hi, Aisha. Hi. How are you doing? I'm okay. Can you hear my cat? He has joined us. No, but I am so there for that cat. What's your cat's <laughs> name? Well, this one is Boris. Boris. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Boris. I read a piece that was written by Stephanie Granada on Outside Magazine by you, and I thought it was incredible because it talked about how you want to actually change the scene of uh, of cycling because there are no female African-American pro cyclists in the United States. Right. Yeah. And so your plan, tell me about your plan. Well, the goal is representation and I consider myself an advocate by example. So I figure it'll be a lot more of a sell if I can like to try to convince somebody to get into bike racing. If I've been there, if I've done that. And especially if I've done it at the highest level of the sport. So my plan is to go pro and try and dupe some other folks into doing it too. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome. So what is involved in that duping? (laughs) Like how do you, how do you convince other people to get into a sport that is widely not representative? I mean, at the core of it, bike racing is super, super fun. Yeah. There's a lot of social stuff that could use some assistance. It's very homogenous and, that can get a little isolating at times, but I feel like as as a black woman, that's an experience that I'm relatively used to. <laughs> and so that has not stopped me from pursuing this thing that I enjoy tremendously. And I feel like there's been a lot of women like me who have not had the opportunity to even discover if they enjoy it or not. And so that's the thing that I want to change. So I was reading a piece that actually you had written for Huck Magazine a couple of years ago, and it was really, really beautiful. And it actually, your quote was, 
advocacy led me to racing because you were explaining sort of your journey to racing and how you got into it. And you talked about your childhood and essentially biking was a form of transportation to friends' homes, but then also how later in life in university, it also became like that. And you sort of got introduced to different bikes, but you really, really fell in love with it. And then you came to it from a volunteer perspective, working with disabled folks. So how did that turn into racing though? How did that kind of activism and, and, and involvement in community engagement turn into racing. On the commuter and advocacy level, there are so many different kinds of cyclists and so many people who enjoy bikes in different ways. And so you're always getting exposed to different ways of riding a bike. And, you know, I started as a commuter and that led into advocacy. And then that led into I was like a messenger for a very short period of time. And that led into like the fixie scene, which is kind of like, I guess, the skaters of of bicycling. And, and that led into racing unofficially. And then that led into racing, you know, sanctioned racing and like legal governed racing. And so mm-hmm. it's just one thing literally led to another and just being exposed to all of these different things by different people and meeting new people and um, just wanting to try all of the things has <laughs> led me down a very interesting road. <laughs> I was wondering, like, the, when you go to, like, races and stuff, do you ever get double takes? Do people ever look at you and go like, oh, but not in a bad way, but sort of like, oh, that kind of microaggressive? <laughs> um, my favorite is someone called me a unicorn to my face, and that was pretty early on. <laughs> it was just like, oh, oh my God. Okay, this is what we're working with. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, so, I get it, but it's like, really, really? Yeah, we're we're doing that. See, okay. see I don't, <laughs> I don't get it actually. Like, why? Oh, I can't even. Oh my gosh, I need more coffee for that. So, <laughs> so the the reality is, you love this sport. What would be obstacles in your way? Like, what do you need? For example, if our listeners want to support you on this journey, what do we need to do to help you build up that community, that diverse community within racing? What can be done and what can our listeners and what can we do? Okay, so the obvious answer for most things like this is money. (laughs) But from a less financial perspective... Voices. Voices are very helpful. Voices are very important. Speaking up when you see things that aren't right. If you see brands that are misrepresenting people of color or not representing them at all. And I say this with the caveat of if they claim to be inclusive (laughs) and if they claim to represent diversity and they're not doing that, then that speaking up is very important. And it can be really challenging and it can feel, I guess, scary. In a, in a sense where I feel like oftentimes that if I speak up, then am I damaging my chances of doing the thing that I want to do? But yeah. at the same time, it's like, well, that's why I'm here. So I have to speak. I have to speak up. Like I don't really have a choice. Otherwise I am wasting my time and everyone else's. Um, so yes, being a voice is super, super important. And also, you know, giving it a shot. If you have this opportunity to ride a bike in some capacity or try something new in some capacity, go for it. Don't count yourself out before you've given it a try. And that extends beyond cycling. There, you know, even in just these Winter Olympics, I know you were paying real close attention to that. Like we just had so many firsts and we're still having all of these firsts. And it's because somebody decided to try something that wasn't necessarily expected of them. So 
I think that is the best way to support <laughs> what I'm trying to do. Be a voice and, you know, also be an advocate by example. Try something new. Well, that's that's amazing. That's actually really, really well put to try something new and, and to get out there because that's how it happens. So the other thing, you, you one of the things that you had written that I really, really um, like, and you touched on it as well, was about representation and how your involvement in cycling is really, it's, it's actually really pivotal and it's, it's, it's groundbreaking in that sense. I don't like to words, use words like pioneering and groundbreaking, but you know, they're the actual words I'm using. Just sort of, you said, people don't see themselves in the sport, so they don't feel like it's a thing they ever want to do. And that's very, you know, consistent with what you've been saying. You can't be what you don't see that idea. So when you were growing up, who were like your sporting role models that you did see? Did you have any and who were they? Yeah, I feel like my biggest influences were track racers or track runners. Okay. I'm um, like Jackie Joyner-Kersey and Flojo and mm-hmm. Gil Devers and also like some WNBA basketball players because that happened, you know, in our lifetime. So it was really cool to see, you know, women not have representation as professional basketball players in this country to having an elite, having an entire league. And that was awesome. So yeah, that was really cool and pivotal for me. And, you know, Serena isn't significantly older than I am. So just watching her grow up and just turn into this like amazing athlete is still inspiring today. And like just now watching her overcome being a new mom and like there's like something like last week she said she like a, like a couple weeks ago she couldn't walk to her mailbox and it's just like this image of that woman not being able to walk to her mailbox and I know that she's going to just come back out and destroy everyone and it's gonna make me so <laughs> happy <laughs> yeah oh yeah but that's that's awesome you know it's like those are the the, the women that I look t- look up to and it's not that I want to run track or play tennis. It's just this example of like, you can do this thing that you want to do if you really want to do it. Um, And that's been like super, super helpful for me. Yeah, I think as coming from racialized communities and people in spaces where there weren't a lot of role models that looked like us, I didn't grow up with any like South Asian soccer player. I mean, I looked to Brianna Scurry a lot because I mean, I loved her and she was like a prominent black woman. Uh, She was a goalkeeper for the US women's national team that won in 99 the World Cup. But there wasn't a lot. And in fact, I looked to a French skater named Soraya Bonnelly. Oh, she's great. Isn't she amazing? But I mean, I'm not a black woman, but I certainly wasn't like, you know, Katerina Witt or someone else. So like I would look to other people. So I totally understand what you're saying. And, and figure skating wasn't even a sport that I did, but you know, when you're, I'm much, I'm much older than you, but looking for examples when you're a child and sort of like going out there and say, who, who looks different? Um, that's why Christy Amaguchi has a soft spot mm-hmm. in my heart because, you know, I look to her cause like she didn't look like the rest of the, what it was. She was unique and she was brilliant and she was powerful. And I was like, yeah, she's a woman of color and what that meant. And have you had young women come and say that to you? Have you had young people come up and say that, you know, I'm glad you're doing this? Yeah, it's really awesome. And it's not just like little, like little people. It's like people of all ages, like women of all ages, men of all ages. And that is not exactly the impact that I thought it would have. I don't know what impact I thought it would have. I just felt like it was important and something that I should try and do. But it's pretty neat (laughs) for sure. 
Well, you deserve all, you're being humble. I can tell you're being humble. You deserve all the accolades because just the way you present yourself, the way you write, the way you get out there. If somebody wants to get into cycling and is not really sure how, do you have a couple of tips on how can they can do that? Yeah. So most places have like local cycling clubs and mm-hmm. organizations that are geared towards people getting into cycling and you can get in as a commuter where there are usually advocacy organizations that are trying to get people on bikes in general. And then you can also get in, you know, as a recreational cyclist or a racer. And that's where the, like the cycling clubs come in, come into play where you get into that more intense version of cycling that is closer to racing, but not racing. So yeah, that's where I would start. But my biggest advice is to find other people to ride with because they're going to teach you more than you could ever read on the internet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's also just really nice to have that camaraderie of someone to, to learn with. And that really is what helped me. I, when I moved to New York, I started riding with we bike NYC and their whole thing was, we're just going to go ride and get some ice cream or ride and get some donuts or ride and do this thing. And that's why I got to the track in the first place. And that's why I started working with the, the tandem people who have disabilities because of this group, they, put together these rides and I showed up and I tried it and I loved it. And I never would have done that on my own. I would have come up with a reason why I couldn't, but having that partner, like partnership and that camaraderie of other people to try it with and laugh at myself with and and laugh at and -hmm. share that struggle. I thought that was really helpful. And that's kind of how I learn. So I encourage others to, you know, try that if if they learn in a similar fashion. Where can our listeners find you? On social media. I am, I suppose, on everything. It's a pun. So it's A-Y-E-S-U-P-P-O-S-E or on the internet in general at aquickbrownfox.com. A quick brown fox, not the quick brown fox. A quick brown fox.com. Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. We're so, I'm so happy to talk to you. I think you're amazing. And thank you for bringing Boris on. We know he's a devoted listener as well. (laughs) (laughs) So, best of luck with everything. We can't wait to see where your journey takes you. Thank you so much. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Amira, want to get us started? Yeah. So on Friday, the Cleveland baseball team opened their season and at their home opener at Progressive Field, as they've done for 25 years, people led by the Committee of the 500 Years of Dignity and Resistance demonstrated at Progressive Field to protest the use of Chief Wahoo of the Cleveland Indians name and the imagery that the team uses. If you remember, we had a discussion earlier this year about the owner, Paul Dolan, announcing plans to discontinue the display of Wahoo on the jerseys and hats in the 2019 season, but many protesters took to the to say less Wahoo is not good enough. We need to get rid of it once and for all. What I'm burning though is the reaction to these demonstrators. There's a video that you can watch if you feel like torturing yourself of, <laughs> of Indian fans walking in past the protesters, screaming at them things like, fuck you Marxists, making war cries, saying long live the cheap or yelling get a job when they're inexplicably walking into a baseball game at the same time. <laughs> 
But the thing that really gets my goat about this is like you're literally walking on Iroquois land. You're walking on Chippewa land. You're walking on Shawnee land. You live in a state called Ohio, which is an Iroquois word for Great River. Like the audacity to fix your face and mock and and yell and, and chagrin people who are simply saying, give us dignity and stop using racist ass images is appalling. The audacity to not reckon with this this legacy of settler colonialism is just absolutely grinding my gears. And I think like I, I am sitting here recording this right now on uh, Lanapine land on Muncie land. Like you can't forget that at all. And so to honor indigenous people and generally just burning the shitty way, not only that these people behaved as they walk into the stadium or the continued use of the mascot, which are kind of perpetual burns, but also just the shitty way that we kill, extract from, mock, ignore, misremember, and actively silence indigenous people. I just, I'm, I'm over it. It's sickening. I'm, it, we're living in the legacy of settler colonialism and we can't forget that. I'm burning it down. Burn. 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 All right, Shereen, what are you burning this week? Okay, so this week, a story, I came across a story, and this is actually taking place in Japan, and we have so much to burn all over the world, and we're going to do that. So actually, what ended up happening, who is Tomoko Nakagawa, who is mayor of Takarazuka City, spoke to the media because she was part of her job as mayor, you know, she's head of the city in, in, in leadership, was to award sumo wrestlers sort of give them their props after they had won. But she was protesting because the tradition in sumo wrestling is male only. So she wasn't allowed to actually come into the ring, which I guess they consider sacred for their machismo, I guess you could say. And so she had to stand outside the ring. And the optics of this are like terrible. This is a woman that was democratically elected and she's not allowed into this little space to be able to like award the, the, the sumo wrestlers. So she spoke about it. And I think this is incredibly important for many different reasons because, you know, I think that within many cultures, like globally, like we know that toxic patriarchy is like an ill all over the world, but there are sports that are still considered like this. And uh, Jess, you had men mentioned just something in passing that the lengths that men will go to to hang on to those sort of traditions are really upsetting. Like, for example, and it's not as if it can't happen. For a quick example, uh, the subcontinent, the South Asian subcontinent has a sport called kabaddi, which is a very old form of, uh, I guess you could call it wrestling. Women have teams now. It's really not that hard to move away from something and include women. Like she doesn't want to wrestle anyone. She literally just wants to do her job as mayor. So I'm burning that. I'm burning toxic patriarchy when, you know, it's, it's ex wrong and exclusionary and just disgusting. I want to burn it. Burn. All right, Lindsay, what do you want to throw on in the incinerator? Augusta National. <laughs> Yay, Please. Go ahead. So this, go ahead. this week, there were a lot of fawning headlines about Augusta National because they announced that they are going to actually hold a women's amateur championship starting in 2019, which will be the first tournament this club has ever had for women. And, you know, they have four members since they, they didn't accept women until 2012 as members. They didn't admit any members to their club. And currently there are four. So, you know, so of course this got a lot of praise. And I, I do understand the people who have been following the story for a while or seeing, you know, in the past seven years, these are two significant signs of 
progress, but I'm over giving them any credit for crap like this. <laughs> like this is far too little, far too late. So let me talk a little bit about what this tournament actually is. So in 2019, they're going to host the first ever Augusta National Women's Amateur Championship. My favorite quote was from the chairman who said, I thought this was the right time to do this. You know, 68 years after the LPGA was formed. Sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now the ladies are finally ready. But look, this is not, first of all, a full tournament. It is a 54-hole stroke play event, but only the final 18 holes will be played at Augusta. That means only 30 of the players will make it to that final round, which will be played at Augusta. Also, it's an amateur championship, which means the professional women are not allowed to compete in it. So this is not an LPGA event. This is not actually the 72 best players in the world. It's the 72 players in the world who have maintained their amateur status. So professional women's golfers are still not allowed to play at Augusta. And third, what makes this me very angry is that it, it happens at the exact same time as the LPGA's first major championship of the year, the ANA Inspiration, which means, first of all, the top amateurs in the world are going to have to decide whether they want to try to qualify for this premier LPGA event or if they want this opportunity, this very rare opportunity to play at Augusta. And that's bad for the game. And secondly, that means that the that the attention, it's going to be competing for eyeballs because they want to broadcast this. So it's going to be competing for eyeballs with the top you know, the first premier women's golf event of the year. I don't like that. It doesn't feel like that's helping boost women's golf. It feels like it's helping boost Augusta National and not women's golf as a whole. Right. So burn. <laughs> this is not good enough. Burn. 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 So this week, Twitter follower at MS underscore Peace Weaver asked me if Burn It All Down was going to talk about the recent North Northern Irish rugby rape case. And I didn't know what she was talking about. So I looked into it and now I'm here to burn the inevitable horrific narratives that come out of high profile sexual assault cases involving sports stars. I want to make a content warning right now because I'm about to mention some disgusting comments by these players who've since been acquitted in court. A woman who was 19 at the time says two Ulster and Irish national rugby team members, Patty Jackson and Stuart Olding, assaulted her at Jackson's home in June 2016. Two other men were charged in the case, Blaine McElroy, who was accused of exposure, and Rory Harrison, who was charged with perverting the course of justice and withholding information. They were all found not guilty. Some of the evidence the court heard was that the taxi driver who took her home said she was distressed. The next morning, she messaged a friend, quote, worst night ever, so I got raped. There was blood on the sheets and on her underwear. And there were a horrific series of WhatsApp messages between the men. Like, I feel dirty that I read them today. Olding wrote, quote, there was a bit of spit roasting going on last night, fellas. And Jackson responded, there was a lot of spit roast last night. Harrison, the friend charged with withholding information and who took the woman home that night in the taxi, told the group, quote, mate, no jokes. She was in hysterics, wasn't going to end well. In the Mm. end, though, the jury believed it was consensual. Apparently, the woman was inconsistent in her recounting of what happened. She was on the witness stand (gasps) for eight days and she was cross-examined. She was cross-examined by the defense team for all four men. So four times over. And there was another woman who witnessed what happened and told the court that it was just a, it didn't seem like she was in distress. It was just a threesome. 
The defense's argument then was that the woman was simply embarrassed about people finding out she had participated in a threesome and decided instead to say it was assault. I want to give kudos to the thousands of people in Ireland who protested across multiple days throughout the country, including Dublin, Belfast, Cork, and Galway. They've used the hashtag I Believe Her to support the woman and to tell their own stories. The woman's name, of course, was released on social media. One group paid for a full-page advertisement in the Belfast Telegraph calling for both men to be dropped from their teams. Jackson has since apologized for his lewd behavior and expressed regret for what happened. If you could see me now... I would be shrugging. But overall, I'm just so damn tired of how these things play out over and over again in the exact same way. And I'm just so upset for that woman. So I just want to burn it all. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First, our honorable mentions. Congratulations to all the competitors in the Commonwealth Games, including Indian weightlifter Sanjita Chanu, who won a gold medal in the 53-kilogram category. She lifted a total of 192 kilograms, which included a <laughs> so much, which included a Commonwealth Games record of 84 kilograms in the snatch and 108 kilograms in clean and jerk. Also, congratulations to Uganda's netball team, who had the country's first ever victory at the Commonwealth Games with a narrow win over Malawi. And kudos to the 2018 Commonwealth Games, the first multi-sport event ever, where there will be the same number of medals for women as for men. We want to give a shout out to everyone involved with Equal Playing Field. You might remember this organization from their event last summer where women played the highest altitude game of football in history on Mount Kilimanjaro. One of those women, Monica Gonzalez, was our guest on episode 10 of Burn It All Down. Now Equal Playing Field has staged a game at the lowest point on Earth, the Dead Sea. EPF is a grassroots nonprofit initiative to challenge gender inequality in sport and to promote sports development for girls and women globally, especially in marginalized country contexts. And they do these games to raise awareness about how unequal the playing fields are and to bring the message of gender equity in sport to communities throughout the world. We are so excited for them. Arizona State sophomore Giselle G. Juarez, who pitched in all four of the Sun Devils games last week, in 22 innings, she allowed just 10 hits, walked one, and struck out 37. She came away with three wins and a save. She hasn't allowed an earned run since February, a streak of 68 consecutive innings. All right, a drum roll, please. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That was a drum roll. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. (laughs) It was beautiful. Our badass woman of the week is Arike Ogumbwale. What is there to say about this shooting guard from Notre Dame that hasn't already been said? She hit the game-winning buzzer beater in both the semifinal game against Connecticut and then again in the championship game against Mississippi State with almost no time on the clock, a tied game, and Victoria Vivian's hand in her face. Ogumbwale shot a three-pointer that somehow, miraculously, went in. Congratulations and thank you to all the women who played in the tournament this year. And Arika Ungumbwale, you are a badass. Woo! Okay, and to round out this episode, let's talk about what's good in our worlds this week. Lindsay, what is good with you? Oh, I just got back from a very brief trip to Philly, which was horrible because of the driving and because (laughs) of the fact that I 
stupidly left my credit card at home when I went to rent my car and then they talked me into getting their insurance, which then made me, I, you know, triple the cost that I was in. Oh, no. Anyways, I'm just went, this trip went way over budget for really dumb reasons and I'm really mad at myself, but it was really lovely. I got to meet my aunt and my little cousin and celebrate her 20th birthday, which is just, mm. I just can't believe she's 20. Oh, happy and birthday. And uh, then I got to go see and spend the night with my oldest friend who grew up in the house next door to me. And I don't get to I don't think I've seen her since I was in her wedding three and a half years ago. So it was just a really quick, uh, lovely trip to reconnect with uh, some people I love very, very much. And I will if you see me in the next two weeks, though, you need to see me at home because I will not be going out to eat for a while. But yes, (laughs) it was lovely. (laughs) Amira, how about you? Yeah, I survived my big event with the Olympians. Yay! Yay. So I'm looking forward to sleep. It went very well and we had wonderful feedback and we had an overflow room because so many people came out, over 275. Wow. So it was very exciting, and it was so great to be there when uh, Wyoming released her memoir and signed her first book. And, you know, it was wonder- It was just all around wonderful. And I'm also looking forward. I'm heading to Memphis on Wednesday, and I'll be in Memphis with a quick jot down to Old Miss, but mostly Memphis for the weekend, doing some, some business down there. But I'm excited to be in warm weather because it's currently April and 27 December degrees outside. So I'm ready for Memphis and for barbecue and looking forward to having a good time and to go to the Lorraine Hotel. We're recording this about four days after the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination there. So I'm I'm personally on a on personal note looking forward to kind of walking within that space and and reflecting on um the legacy. Wow. Okay. I hope you have a nice trip. I think you guys are could predict what I'm going to say here, but uh, <laughs> Billie Jean King tweeted at me this week to tell me that a Huffington Post piece I wrote about wanting more media coverage for women's sports was a, and I quote, fantastic article. <gasps> uh, she, yeah, I had to like, I was cooking dinner and I couldn't finish. Aaron had to take over <laughs> and and then well, that, I couldn't sit right. down to Put eat. Put the men in the kitchen. Billy Jean King says so. So, yes. Yeah, like I couldn't <laughs> eat. Like they started eating without me because I couldn't like sit down. Like I was all over the place. <laughs> she also now follows me on Twitter as well as the rest of the Burn It All Down crew. Billy Jean just, King is a flamethrower. Uh, yes. Yes. And I'm just not over it. And so I am now awaiting the mug I ordered that has a picture of the tweet on it. Like, I have oh, no, my God. I have no chill, <laughs> you guys. Uh, Shireen, what's good in your world? Thanks. I just uh, got back from Duke where I had this pretty incredible couple of days doing a panel with Gwendolyn Oxenham and Dr. Jane Williams, uh, moderated by Grant Wall, who was delighted to be in our company. But even more exciting than that was I actually got a chance to meet Ashil Amembe. And he is like an incredible Cameroonian race theorist. He's a philosopher. He's amazing. We watched a match uh, together. And more importantly, he was texting Leanne Turam at the same time, who was inadvertently texting me. So this is one step closer to me and Zizou. So that was like super important. And this is just days after what Jessica mentioned about Billie Jean King following me on Twitter. And I was sobbing into my hijab, which I so coolly told her. So you guys are um, embarrassing. Anyway, so I was just <laughs> it's just 
<laughs> Lindsay, you didn't do anything. I put it up on my my class had just finished watching Battle of the Sexes and we were talking about her. So I put it up oh on PowerPoint God. in my class. No, to be I, a like, cool I, like, I told one yeah. person I, and, and then I I mean I was really excited, but I was really trying to play it cool and now uh no I agree with Jess. I have no chill about this. In fact, I was in the grocery store when it happened and I walked out and the only person because I needed to tell somebody other than you folks oh, was no. the, the kid who was on his smoke break. And uh, he was very, he had no idea who I was. Oh, and he, he, he just me. was lovely. <laughs> I feel right now. <laughs> so, and just to quickly cap off, my sons are playing in provincial volleyballs, which are state finals. And I'm really excited about going because um, of being a volleyball parent is, is really fun. People are very polite, which I find bizarre, but I, I get some <laughs> shouting in there. All right. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you. Please do one thing for us this week. Share this episode or this show with two people in your life, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. And if you rate the show at whichever place you listen to it, it will help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you, literally. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burn it all down. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burn it all down. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Amir Rose Davis, Shireen Ahmed, and Lindsay Gibbs, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. And I'm so-